This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Today we're talking all about critical steps with three guys who have just wrote a book on critical steps. Let's get into the intro and I'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplit. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to change the perception of health and safety. So hit subscribe and like and all that stuff, right? Today we're talking to three gentlemen, three lovely guys, three American guys. Uh, I don't know why I need to point that out. Three lovely American guys. The American is, is not relative to the point. Anyway, um, they are called Jim Marinas, Ron Farris and Tony Mishara and they've just teamed up to write a book and today we're going to talk about that book um i read a couple of chapters they sent me a couple of chapters to have a skim through um, before we had a chat and i had some questions and we we're talking about the book and why they wrote it and so on and so forth so it's a really good chat hope you enjoy it uh, before we get into it though let's just have a quick shout out to paradigm human performance our sponsors for rebranding safety youtube channel and podcast paradigm human performance are human organizational performance experts if you know them you know them they're a great team of people all a lovely bunch of people um, they run a webinar every other week on a thursday at 2 p.m called the learning organization webinar they've built a fantastic little community uh, of which i'm happy to be part of um, and Teresa is a lovely lady doing some amazing work and that company are what they say they are they are full of human factors human organization performance experts they do a great job of working on partnering with customers and and companies help them take that next step in their evolutionary journey of risk management so if you're looking for a company to help you onboard a load of those principles of harp and and how to get your humans and your organizations working better together then paradigm is the consultant for you. So go check out all the details in the description below, email, phone number, website, and whilst you're on the website, sign up to the Learn Organization webinar if you haven't already. So, a couple more shout outs. Don't forget to check out Rebranding Safety and Project Millennium down below. Rebranding Safety now got consultancy, so there's loads of stuff that we can help you at Risk Fluent. Um, Rebranding Safety's got social media influencing uh, solutions if you're trying to sell or advertise within the safety community and risk community check out below and then project Meletium is a great place for your professional development the only mastermind for health and safety and risk professionals without further ado let's jump into the amazing chat with ron farris jim marinas and tony mashara let's go right gents welcome to the podcast thank you very much for coming on do you want to, to be here Thank you very much. Good. I'm glad to have you. We're not going to talk about guns. We just spoke about guns for like <laughs> hour. Even though one day I do think that would be a really interesting podcast. <laughs> you all need to have a couple of beers. We're like five British people, five American people, have a couple of beers. It'd be the most amicable and nice debate that we've ever had. <laughs> you could talk about human and organizational performance with a focus on, on you know, gun safety. I think that's happening. I think that's. Got to 
you know, um, I can't remember his surname. It's a guy called Bill. There's a safety malcontent. He's a quite um, on LinkedIn. He's quite popular. I can't remember his surname, but me and him got into a little bit of a, uh, a I say a robust conversation on on WhatsApp group that we're in because after the horrific event on the film studio with uh, Alec Baldwin, where he, he actually unfortunately shot uh, a pistol, and then. Um, and I remember just being shocked that they have real pistols. And I'm like, it's 2021. Why are we still using real pistols on a film set? Surely it's, surely we've, I mean, come on, we've, we've been to the moon. Elon Musk <laughs> making a rocket that can go to the space and come back and land. And we haven't decided to invent a gun that, that it looks good on film, but is not a real gun. Um, and then Bill was just like, as long as you've got gun safety and you know how to use it, I've trained Marines. And I was just like, yeah, I forgot I was talking to Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I've lost this argument already. Uh, right. Anyway, gents, do you want to, do you want to introduce yourself? Kind of just go around, go around the room, tell us who you are and what you do, and then we'll get into, um, into your book. Well, I'm Tony Mishera, and uh, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I've been uh, working in human and organizational performance probably for the last, well, it's easier to say since when. Uh, I'd say 1985 when I joined the Institute mm -hmm. of Nuclear Power Operations. But my background is uh, nuclear operations. I was a simulator instructor at a nuclear power station. And before that, I spent seven years active duty in the nuclear submarine force qualified as a uh, engineer of naval nuclear propulsion systems and and uh so that's my technical background but i'm also a certified performance technologist uh, uh by the international society of performance improvement and i'm basically a consultant i've been a consultant since 2007. awesome awesome who wants to go next sure yeah uh ron ferris um I've been a human organizational performance consultant probably for six years now. I, I work with Hope Consulting where I'm a business partner and then have a video-based training company where we develop high reliability organization and human performance video-based training. And, and what I mean by video, it's real life video uh, of workers in the field. And we talk about what, what we describe in the HOP world. Um, and, uh, I spent eight years in the nuclear Navy in the 1980s, basically. So uh, I, I was aboard a the USS Nimitz, and I was a training instructor for my last three years in Idaho, which is where I ended up. So I'm Idaho Falls, Idaho. I worked at uh, Argonne National Laboratory as a reactor operator on a fast sodium reactor, similar to what Bill Gates is going to build over here in Wyoming, the Terra Power Project. I also worked on the Terra Power Project as a research scientist in human factors. So my last eight years at Idaho National Lab, I was a research scientist and I had been a safety engineer for a few years as well. I've got uh, a couple of certificates, one of them human performance and one emergency management. Uh, but my background is operations and maintenance and, uh, and management. And uh, so I've leveraged that information and, and tried to bring those experiences of both turning a wrench or flipping a switch to this book. And and some of our, even in some of our personal experiences. Awesome. Well, so Jim. I'm Jim Marinas. My background uh, like these two is uh, nuclear Navy. I rode submarines, uh, went from there into uh, nuclear weapons, material production, and uh, then spent stints 
in uh, research operations leadership, uh, some work doing um, consulting at Los Alamos in nuclear weapons uh, design, a little bit of work with some of the other national labs in human and organizational performance. And I currently consult, have been doing that since uh, 2015 in human and organizational performance. My background is also mechanical. Um, have a, a good amount of experience working in um, nuclear plants, uh, research environments, and uh, do all good bit of my own personal uh, mechanic work still. So, so I'm going to summarise that you all you all know a little bit about human organizational performance, nuclear power. Just just a bit, just a little. <laughs> Enough to be dangerous. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just, I'm kind of blown away if I'm honest. Like I, I would, I'd hate if I was introducing myself next. I'm not because it's my podcast, but if I had to go after you three, I'd be like, Oh shit. I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to, yeah, I, I did nothing as a teenager, just played on skateboard a little bit, drank too much. And then I ended up in plastics manufacturing and that's it really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can have a few years on you, James. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, by the time I get a bit older, I can I can craft such a beautiful introduction like that. Um, fair play to you all, gents, and um, and uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm I'm impressed already. That was uh, a, a, a an impressive introduction, right? So the book. What one of you actually just give us an introduction to the book first, because I know it's not out yet. I know a lot of people that know you guys or are in that community kind of know it's coming out. And some people might have got the first um, introduction and the free chapters on the website. Um, but if one of you could just maybe give us an introduction to the book first and then we'll move into kind of getting a bit deeper, if that makes sense. You guys mind if I jump on that one? Go ahead, Tony. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, uh, uh, Critical steps came to my attention back in the mid 1990s uh, when we were, when we at the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, we were looking at human performance for the commercial nuclear industry. Uh, and, uh, and one of the first tools that we came up with uh, was uh, called uh, self checking. And we used the, the mnemonic called Stop, Think, Act, Review, or STAR. And uh, the question came up well, when do you use STAR? And uh, you, you, the idea was, well, you want to make sure you, you're paying attention, you're touching the right thing, you're going to do the right thing, and you, you verify the right thing uh, when the risk is high. And uh, at that time, we didn't necessarily call them, call those situations critical steps or those human actions critical steps, but we had that idea. <clears throat> and then in the late 1990s, 97, 98, uh, we wrote the book called Excellence in Human Performance with the aid of Dr. James Reason. He was our consultant for that. And, uh, and we started using the phrase critical steps, which we actually <clears throat> borrowed from the uh, uh, Department of Energy's uh, uh, um, terminology for uh, important or risk risk-based uh, type steps. They called them hazardous steps. And, and Pantex, which is the panhandle of Texas, uh, the Department of Energy facility there, um, what would you say, Jim? They, they assembled and disassembled nuclear, nuclear weapons, nuclear devices. That's right. And, and so, so they had these steps called hazardous steps and uh, critical steps. 
and hazardous steps was considered the more serious, but they had a lot of words in their definitions that had a lot of uh, 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 there was no real clear and crisp definition of what was hazardous, what was critical. And, uh, and so uh, when we wrote the Excellence in Human Performance booklet, we started using that concept critical, uh, critical step because it had a, more, a greater sense of dread uh, associated with a human action. And it better go right the first time or else you're going to suffer serious consequences. But along with that, let me go ahead and define it. You know, critical steps is that human action that will trigger immediate, irreversible and intolerable harm to an asset if that action or a preceding action had been done improperly. And uh, that last phrase, uh, preceding action, refers to what we call risk important actions. And uh, I'm going to let Ron talk about that a little bit later. But uh, but that's the idea of a critical step. And we realized this is something that the industry can benefit from. And, uh, and so, so I've, been, I've been using the concept and training uh, uh, clients on the concept since then. And um, back in 2018, I had the opportunity uh, to publish my first book, which was Risk-Based Thinking. And there was a chapter in there on critical steps. And uh, as a chapter, I looked at it and I thought, there's got, there's a lot more to this concept that could be conveyed to, uh, to the general public about how to manage, how to identify, how to manage uh, and exercise positive control over these high risk activities. Um, and then what do you do if you do make a mistake at a critical step? And so fundamentally the book, is about those three things. One, identify a critical step. Number two, exercise positive control of a critical step. But if you lose control, you have to fail. If you can, fail safely. And the fourth objective of the book is to, is to, is to align the organization to support those first three objectives. And so that's what the book is really all about. Identify, control, and then fail safely. Awesome. So how did you kind of, how did you three gents come together and, and, and write the book? Like, how did that kind of, yeah, how did that happen? Was it natural or was it just like, you know, over a beer or <laughs> was it talking about humans or something? Yeah. So luckily, Tony and I happened to be working together and uh, we were working at one of our client uh, facilities and we were talking and he had seen some work that I was doing that was very similar to what he was uh, very interested in, in doing with this book. And he told me about writing the book. And next thing I know, he, he, he uh, gave me the great opportunity to be a co-author in the book. And, and I jumped on it, of course, because risk-based thinking is, uh, is literally one of my desktop books. And, uh, and I put the spiral. So I always refer to it. It's got a ton written in it. And uh, it's my favorite book because Tony's a, a very good writer and Thank the you. critical steps chapter, I literally just painted it yellow because the whole chapter is that important. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it was a great opportunity. And then uh, I'll let Jim talk about how he came on board. Tony and I go way back. We crossed paths um, really in the night at Institute of Nuclear Power Operations. We didn't work together there, but we were there during the same period. And as soon as I saw one of the, the precursor programs to uh, human performance at MPO at P 
piqued my interest and it was HPES, Tony, if you remember that. Right. Human performance enhancement. And um, I just resonated with the the messaging in that document. Uh, then I uh, had the opportunity to, to review Tony's first book, provided some feedback on that. Um, had been working in resilience and I got a, a call actually from Tony when I was up in Alaska working with Conoco Phillips asking if I'd be interested in writing the book with him and I jumped at the opportunity I I felt that was a real honor and I I, I wanted to contribute the the aspects of resilience that I had been working uh, both with Conoco Phillips and some of the Department of Energy labs so got an offer and jumped at it let me add to that James uh you know, I wrote risk-based thinking by myself and I realized there were some gaps in that book and, uh, I didn't want to have gaps in this book. And, uh, and so I realized I need somebody looking over my shoulder or asking the hard questions. And we had some hard questions. We had some, some, uh, in-depth conversations, <laughs> uh, about various topics and, you know, we'll explore that a little bit later, but, but, uh, you know, it, uh, it opened my eyes to things I hadn't th thought of, like failing safely. That was something I had not thought of. Conversations uh, is an, an important aspect of this, adaptive capacity. Those were uh, a couple of topics I, I had not previously considered. So that was a big plus for this book. Hmm. Yeah, nice. I like that. I like that. I, ca I call them robust conversations, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> We do off. too, actually. <laughs> we use that term in the book, James, uh, specifically. Yeah, because of yeah what they it, were robust, but I'd say put the accent on the bust. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we had some long Zoom meetings. I think some of them lasted more than two hours. Oh yeah. Oh, we had Very one much. that went over four. Oh, okay, that's right. <laughs> very robust conversation then what why why that concept of critical step i mean there is there is so much in human organizational performance in there and then, jim you mentioned kind of resilience as well which you like i suppose you could kind of class as a separate kind of philosophy or theory of they kind of overlap there's so much out there now why did you why did you kind of go we need to we need to at least focus on critical step or at least use that to structure our conversation why was it that one thing that you thought you needed to write a book about well let me jump on that it it was it's one of those things that um i was i was uh I emphasize even when I was working at the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations or EMPO, even in the early 1990s, and I felt like the industry could benefit from it. In fact, most everywhere you went in the nuclear industry, they really believed in that. It just, it had the, uh, 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 what is it, uh, Jim, uh, content validity. It just, it was just a valid concept from an operator's perspective. And, but it just had not, we had not put flesh on those bones. You know, we, they knew the concept, but people didn't quite understand how to define it and uh, how to use that definition and how to, how to uh, discipline themselves to identify where is the real risk in operations. And, um, and so, so one of the things that I've realized in the safety arena, the personnel or industrial or occupational safety arena is there's a lot of emphasis on hazards identifying hazards uh, 
Uh, and then in uh, in the human early human performance days, there was there's and there still is today a lot of emphasis on error avoidance, avoiding error. Um, and uh, basically, we just flip flip the page or flip the chart here and said, okay, the focus is really on assets. When when assets are broken or harmed or injured or damaged in some way, that's what costs. That's what causes uh, events or accidents or incidents at an organization. So let's focus on assets, and then also get away from trying to avoid every mistake. Let's focus right. on those mistakes that have the greatest risk. Or let's talk about losses of control, not so much error, but losses of control of the work as you're trying to add value. So that was, that's, that's the, to me, the nitty gritty of why I thought this was an important concept. Yeah. So I, I've just add on a little bit there is that, you know, in the, in the world of work um, so often, and I go to various clients, they, there seems to be this hyperventilation going on related to risk and risk management and, and how do you manage all that? And, and the problem I've seen with organizations that have adopted some hot HOP uh, philosophies, tools, techniques, is that if everything's important, things are equally unimportant. And that's a problem, yeah. right? So yeah. how do we narrow that focus? Uh, and that's one of the things we bring in this book is that idea of how to draw out the discrete actions that you absolutely must have go right or validate that certain things are set you up to have success at that moment in time. Um, I was at a uh, at a nuclear power plant and uh, I was doing some research there and we pulled all the folks together and I was looking at how to address human performance with technology. And, and then goes to mind what this industry had done. And uh, there was every time they had an accident or an event, they piled more tools on top of the tools they were already <laughs> using to the point that the tools were becoming the error precursors of their next event because they were no longer focused on task. And, and when we pulled all the human performance people together from the various organizations and I told them what I was there to do and they said, I hope the heck that you're not here to give us more of this crap. And they held up all their uh, nuclear jewelry, we call it, which was all their human performance tools they had to carry around on their lanyard and then break those out to do their work. And what we try to do in this book is narrow that focus of when is those tools and which tools are appropriate, not not and 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 when. And if you you say you got to use your human formats all the time, it loses its value. Mm-hmm. And and we're watering down that most important aspect of the task. And and I think that's one of the things we really do a good job bringing out in this book is how to help those folks who've struggled with that aspect. They've adopted this. They've been doing it for years, and they don't know what to do next. I think this book answers that question. I think I think you kind of oh, go on, go on, Jim. Sorry, mate. Well, go ahead if you want to follow up on on something Ron said there. I was just going to add another uh, perspective, but that can wait a sec. I, I was just going to. Oh, uh, I was going to. Do I carry on? I was just thinking I'm, I might end up going us down a rabbit hole here, which is which is it's just dangerous. Um, but I, I think you stumbled on something really interesting that on that Ron and that. This kind of addiction that we have at the moment for like a, a one standardized approach to absolutely everything. So when we think about managing our risks and then somebody goes, what about hot? 
we go, yeah, it's hot. What for? Everything, for everything. Let's do it for everything. <laughs> and and we don't realise is that, and I've seen it as well. In, so in the UK, we, we kind of have different um, terminologies, but really kind of, kind of looking at the same stuff. So we've got hop that we kind of <laughs> look at for, for kind of, which is similar to you guys, what you call it. But then we also have like a bit of a, a bandwagon at the moment for resilience or resilience engineering. Um, and approaches to that, which are which are kind of very similar, um, or, or at least complementary. But it's interesting just to kind of follow up on your example, Ron. Is that I've seen a lot of conversations where people go, "We need to be resilient as an organisation. We need to be totally resilient." And I'm like, "Well, hang on a minute. There's a trade-off. When you're resilient, there's a trade-off, and that trade-off is efficiency, because we've become so efficient for so long, not resilient." So it's not one or the other. It's mm-hmm. working out to your point, which I think is where we'll, we'll end up getting to is identifying what are those things that can really hurt us as a person or as a company uh, or whatever, as a brand. That's where we're resilient. And then what are the stuff that's not really that much higher risk or maybe the risk is to, you know, production. That's where we might be efficient. Uh, right. So it's kind of like lean and resilience together, not one or the other. Um, so I think, Ron, you, you've hit the nail on the head for me. That's one of our biggest challenges right now. I was going to actually say something quite similar to what you just pointed out, James. To, to summarize, what we've done is, is kind of flip the conversation, as Tony said, away from what could go wrong to what must go right. And our emphasis is on ensuring success rather than avoiding failure. Yeah. Because you actually can't really succeed if you fail, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a real difficult concept, but what it does is it helps move the bar away from the linear thinking that has predominated the high-risk industries, which have resulted in approaches like what you described, James. They, they say, well, we, we can do this risk evaluation for virtually everything that we handle. We should do that because that makes us better, but it doesn't because it distracts from the things that you really need to be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect of moving away from linearity into the complex world is the realization that today is almost never just like yesterday. Even if you're handling the same materials, doing the same tasks, things change. And so that's the role of the conversations and getting in there and actually knowing what to pay attention to, knowing what you're going to do to make sure that it goes right. And then knowing what you're monitoring to see if things are in fact changing because of complexity and chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's such an interesting thing. And, I, and actually, Jim, I, I use a line so much now that I stole from you. And I'll be honest with you, don't reference you that much when I tell people that, that I say, this is a great line. Um, but well, that's what it went, you know. <laughs> if I write it down somewhere, I definitely would reference <laughs> um, But no, I, um, jokes aside, I, I do genuinely use your typewriter analogy all the time um, in, in safety. And uh, we're getting so kind of that, don't get me wrong. I'm on the bandwagon with the hop and the, I love it. Like, and I think that's where we need, we need more of that. 
But I always use this analogy that you talked about, like, you know, operations is on that tightrope. We've got to create that safety net, but not, but not have those shiny things that distract him. And I remember you saying that in the Paradigm webinar, and I remember everyone just going, <laughs> no one had anything to say. And I remember just being like, yeah. wow, wow, that was amazing. And it's so true. That's kind of where we are at the moment, I think, isn't it? Or we have been for a long time. Uh, something else. Let me add to. Time. Yeah, let me add to to what uh, Jim and Ron have said. Um, part of the problem that I see with uh, the the various uh, and the the variety and great books written and safety, quality, uh, um, productivity, profitability, and so on, uh, organizational factors, and so you know, those those particular topics. But most of the t- most of the vocabulary that's used in those books are tend to be academic in nature. Uh, they they're not written towards people in the front lines. They're not written for the, the managers of uh, technical organizations. And so, what we attempted to do, we you know, we're not all we're not completely uh, successful in this regard. But for the most part, it's a it's a practically practical oriented book with the focus on well, how do you use this. You know, uh, and uh, and using words and gloss and terminology that uh, that uh, most people use every day in the workplace. Well, and we by the way, examples. we do have a glossary. Go ahead, Jim. We we pulled examples from uh, the various industries that we have worked in uh, yeah. because what we've described you can actually observe uh, right now out there in some segments of industry. And using those as an example, it gave us litmus tests to see if what we were describing was actually helping or just adding confusion. So, you know, we tried to follow the same guidance that we are providing others. Got to pay attention to what matters. I think you're kind of really hitting on those really important points, you know, that we have we kind of got so many solutions now. We're kind of a bit drowned in solutions, aren't we? We don't really know how to use them or use them in real working world. And, I, and I'm, I'm kind of maybe since pretty much since doing this podcast, like for three years now, talking to amazing people like you, then going and buying their book and reading their book. And then like Ron's earlier point, painting it in, in highlighters and then be like, I can't wait to get to work tomorrow and I'm going to do this. And, and, and you kind of get to that point where, you're so excited or passionate about doing these new new practices, but actually the language, you kind of get to work and you and you're like, I'm I'm just going to use the very popular one of people are the not the problem, the solution. Like that's unbelievably popular. Everybody does it. And and like you kind of read the books and you're like, yeah, yeah, people are not the problem. You go to work, <laughs> people are not the problem. And they go, okay, what does that look like? And <laughs> exactly. I didn't think of that. I just read the book and was really excited. And, and, and you're right. There's, there's, a, there's a bit of a lack in whether it's intentional or unintentional, I don't know. And, and that's probably not a conversation for today. But it, it's just there is a real lack in tangible examples. And, and I found it in my own, my own kind of delivery of trying to implement or, or educate people on this stuff. And, and I actually found one of the best examples is a story that I really stumbled across. I remember I went around my, my father-in-law's house and my sister-in-law was, um, was, was telling a story with she, her new, her new boyfriend was there 
and she was kind of met, taking the mick out of her new boyfriend because he brought the wrong bottle of wine. So he'd uh, he'd finished his shift, and um, when he finished the, the evening shift, you only have like a couple of minutes before the the till shut. And he and he and my sister in law Ella had texted him saying, "Bring some wine home for dinner." Right. So he's now under a lot of pressure. Right. So it's like an organizational factor. It's like a tightly coupled system. So I'm like, okay, that's really, and I'm listening to this story and I'm like, tightly coupled system. Pressure. Like, and, and, and I was like, listening to the story and she's like, and he's like, yeah. So I, I, I was, I finished what, and then I ran to the fridge because I knew she wanted a Pinot Grigio, which is for those in the, that's a white wine, white wine is in the fridge, but there is also a Pinot Noir, which is a red wine. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like era trap, Pinot Pinot. Yeah, so that's an era trap. <laughs> the fridge. He, he sees Pinot, Pinot fridge. He it, doesn't even look at the bottle and he just runs to the till, buys it, goes home. It was Pinot Noir. And I'm like, and she's like, what an idiot, as if he as if he didn't know. And I'm like, latent condition, the white, the red. <laughs> and I explained that to people to break down this hop stuff. Like, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then me going, you know, latent condition is something that's sitting there waiting to happen. They're like, I don't, I don't get that. What do you mean? What does that look like in reality? So we're missing those stories that are relatable, those examples that yeah. can pick up and go, I know I've got a story for that. Yeah. And that's a, that's an important feature of our book is every chapter starts with a story hmm. of a, of a clear example of a critical step and how that, that, uh, how the harm uh, occurred and it, it, usually there's a harm involved or some kind of injury or, or, or damage or, or loss in, in every one of these uh, examples. But, but we also emphasize that these concepts can be used at home. You can use these concepts at home you do know, it time. because we- human performance is human performance. Yeah. We got a one, one year old. We have hopped the shit out of us. <laughs> 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 we do it all the time we're like right where's our capacity to fail there or we, <laughs> and she challenges me on it all the time and i'm like i wish i never told you about this stuff <laughs> i love it i love it all of it i think there's an interesting point around um i know we we have we had a pre-chat and i know ron you've sent me loads of stuff which is amazing around the terminology getting the terminology is right and i think this is really interesting point because um, I was actually on a, a paradigm human organizational performance training course, and they, they actually introduced me to the, the concept of critical step. Um, and I remember the room actually really struggling with it. And it's really interesting because in, I don't know if you have this in the, in the US, but in the UK, we have HACCP. I don't know if that's a thing uh, in, in, no, I could tell by your plain face. So we have HACCP, which is Hazard Analysis and Critical Control. Oh, HACCP, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So HACCP, oh, okay. Um, yeah, I recognize it now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. Um, and um, yeah, so I came across HACCP when I was um, in food. It, it kind of, I'm, as far as I'm aware, it come from the food industry. We kind of took it to a lot of things um, and we, we try and apply it to everything. So we analyze, we analyze the hazard and then we put in critical control points. So when they were talking about critical steps, it got lost in this critical control point. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like critical control points. And I was like, 
No, it's not. It's it's not. Mm-hmm. A critical control point is something that controls it, whereas a critical step is something really different. Um, when they said it's like the point of no return, people started trying to get it. So I think understanding terminology, but also the difference in terminology just from UK to US, mm-hmm. you get lost in translation. So I know that's something you guys are, are keen to kind of address as well in the book. So I don't know if there's any examples or anything you want to kind of mention around that around that point. Yeah, well, we so, do. Go yeah, ahead, Ryan. It, yeah, so one of the things that um, I think is very important, I, I was uh, working with a client and uh, I, I met with the nuclear trainer, the, the, the top guy for the nuclear operators for, the, for running the reactor. And uh, he was doing his observation and coaching training with me. And uh, we went in and uh, the, the observation we we're going to do was looking at some folks uh, getting fit tested for their respirators. Right. So class full. And um, we get all done. And, and I told him, I said, you got a couple of minutes. He said, sure. I said, let's look at this checklist for the um, for the, the respirator. And I said, what does it say here at the top? And I said, the following critical steps. And none of them were critical. N- not a single thing on that checklist was a critical step. And I said, what's your definition? He had one is very similar to one we use. And I said, um, so when is it? And the reality was all those actions were risk important actions. They either created safety or they created danger or they brought um, safety by doing it correctly. Mm-hmm. So there was the potential. So none of those things created immediate, irreversible, intolerable harm. And yet they had labeled that. And the problem with that was, is that, like I had said previously, was that it watered it down to the point that the critical step didn't mean anything anymore, right? right? So we've highlighted the world. So they've highlighted the entire page with bright highlight and nobody sees it anymore, right? They're blind to it. And the reality is the the use of a respirator only had a critical step the moment you stepped into the area where there was the potential for some sort of uptake, you know, and and a respiratory issue. And, And he recognized it almost immediately when we had this conversation uh, but that industry, when I worked with them, as a large corporation. They adopted this idea that we, we teach in our book, which is uh, risk important actions. And by, by doing that, they were able to differentiate. I, I think we're getting a little bit of feedback. Are you guys hearing that? Uh, Jim, I've just unmuted you. Sorry. I've just muted you, Jim, just because you're getting a bit of an echo. So when you go to say something, Jim, remember I've muted you. Um, yeah. So all the point was there is that um, many industries have adopted the concept of critical steps. One of the things that we bring new to many industries is this idea of a risk important action, which actually create risk important conditions. And I, I would tell you what's really important there. And we draw it out in the book is the idea that you're not going to go back and check every one of those actions, but you're going to cr- check the conditions that the actions created. So that's a much smaller subset of things to validate. And one of those might be just simply saying, do we have the check sheet and is it complete? And the answer is yes. Okay, those things are done, check. So we move on. We're not gonna go back and do a full respirator check. We're gonna do some very unique things. We'll put it on, hold our hands over the end. We'll suck in on it, make sure we got a good seal, hold that. Does it hold? Yep, we're going in, right? So those are the, the things that we draw out as examples in this book so people can differentiate. And that, that labeling of the correct things then drives us 
to, to identify the right actions that we need to do to make sure that critical step goes off without a hitch. That's what's important. And, and I think that's the practical means that we bring. Jim? Hopefully, no, you're still muted. You're muted. <laughs> is there anything, hopefully something's coming up on your, there we there go. There it is. There it is. <laughs> what I wanted to, to add to that was a potentially unexpected benefit to approaching work this way is that you're actually freeing up the expertise of your folks. And the, the traditional approach is to managing high-risk operations have been impacting the bandwidth of, of our experts in the field more and more over the years to the point where some actually would, would question whether or not you really wanted their expertise or if you just hired a body that you could paste instructions to. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, go, go yeah. look at some of your industries you're supporting now, right? What this does is it, it allows you to, to unspecify some of the things that are not critical but are important and allow the expertise of the individuals to be coming into the mix. Uh, there are a whole lot of potential benefits to that, as I'm sure you could imagine. Yeah, there, you, you'd mentioned efficiency earlier, uh, James, and uh, uh, this creates uh, uh, an awareness of those sections or, or, or uh, uh, portions of an activity that absolutely are risk, risk important. <clears throat> and so you specify clearly what has to be done. But in other parts of the activity, you leave it up to the workers to decide what needs to be done and what's the best way to do it. So you create efficiencies by knowing where the risk is. But they have to maintain this, 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 uh, this sense of uneasiness because uh, there's no such thing as a perfect procedure or perfect training, perfect knowledge, uh, perfect tools. There's this thing called entropy. Things wear out. And, uh, and so they have to be alert for where there are what I call pathways for energy or pathways for the movement of, uh, of, uh, of matter or, or transmission of information. That's when harm occurs. And so get helping them to be aware of those transitions frees up uh, their capacity to do other things without the risk of harm. I, I would add up to that. One of the things that really helps in just building on what Tony said is that and, and you kind of mentioned it, this idea of a latent condition, but when we talk in terms of latent conditions, we, we also talk in terms of what we call landmines, that kind of a theoretical or abstract idea of what a landmine is in the workplace. And they're really the idea of a hidden critical step. Mm -hmm. So we don't know this thing has the potential. So for instance, a lot of folks work on their garage doors and they don't realize that there's a landmine waiting to kill them. Right. And that's the spring in that that garage door when it's under stressed and you go to disconnect it. There's been many of people severely damaged and killed due to the spring in a garage door. Nobody even thinks about it, but it could be hydraulic pressure, uh, steam pressure. It could be uh, 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 some kind of load that's, uh, you know, at some height that you didn't know was there. Somebody can knock something off and you didn't put up a barrier and you have an asset underneath. Uh, I was working at a facility where folks were working up above and they didn't put a mat down and they had a graded area. Had they dropped a wrench, 
there was nuclear instrumentation below them and they were in a limited state. So if that instrumentation went out, they had the potential to take the whole plant down. Yeah, yeah. They had not identified that. And that landmine was sitting there because like Tony said earlier, there's an asset, which is our focus. What are our assets that we need to protect? And then where is that potential exist? Where's that critical step? And looking for those, one of those things, it, it frees you up to focus, uh, like Jim said, on the most important things, but it also gives you a mindset for these things Tony was talking about, which is a pathway. And once we start understanding pathways, we start to recognize these landmines more readily and more importantly, then we can mitigate for them. And that keeps a lot of unexpected things from happening as well. Well, and I'll add to that, Ron, the uh, ability to, to get that focus also uh, from an expertise standpoint and the, uh, the things that, James, you've probably heard when resilience is mentioned, the adaptive capacity necessary to, to manage uh, high-risk operations. Uh, if your bandwidth is full because you specified everything, you have little ability to actually keep your vision broad and to see how things outside your immediate view are actually going. And when you're doing that times the number of people involved, which is rarely just one, because you've got support organizations, you've got the other coordinating organizations and all the members within those, when you're interacting in ways that you're using that bandwidth to say, how are things really going? Then you have the ability to adapt and go back to what Tony was saying, if you do have something that appears to be on the way to failure, you can adapt and fail safely. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a critical aspect of, of yeah. the approach to managing high-risk operations. One thing that we ran into, James, you mentioned earlier that uh, there's not a whole lot about written on the practical application of some of these resilience or high reliability concepts. And when, when we started exploring and doing a deep dive on, on adaptive capacity, how do you do that? What's the practical ways of creating adaptive capacity in an organization? And there's some great articles and books written along those lines, but not a whole lot on how to do it. Yeah. So that, just to piggyback on that idea a little bit. So that concept basically is the and when you hear people talk about the blue line, the black line, you hear a lot of theoreticals. And it, it's basically this idea of how do you close that gap between the work is imagined and the work is performed, right? You've heard those terms. And there's always a gap. Now, a lot of times we think that gap is a negative when reality, there, and we call that drift, but in reality, it's a huge positive and it happens every job. Mm -hmm. the, the reality is, is that the workers, we prescribe what's should be occurring. And then the work is dynamic and, and we've got variable people out there in the workplace, right? So, you know, humans are the greatest source of variability in a dynamic workplace. So given that, they're the ones that are closing that gap and creating safety every single task. And we forget that that's happening. That's why when you say workers are the solution, that's the answer to it is because they, they close that gap and they do it for us every single day. Yeah. And they do that because if we, they didn't, every organization would be shut down because we'd be having events and we'd be out of business. They bring safety 
And so what we talk about in the book is very distinct things. And there's a, we ended up expanding on that greatly, that adaptive capacity, but it's important for, for organizations to recognize, you know, how does the engineering group help bring adaptive capacity? How does our frontline supervisors do it? How does management do it? And how do we as individuals improve our adaptive capacity? Mm-hmm. And we talk about those aspects because that piece really is true, but how do you do it? Uh, I've never seen anybody write on it. And, and we, we did do that with very uh, a lot of information. Well, we also talk about um, from an organization standpoint, how can you in, enable that improvement? So not just from an individual perspective, but organizationally, what can you do to ensure that folks have adaptive capacity that they can exercise? And then how can you help build that? Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. That was like, that was like put 50 P in the machine and you three are off. <laughs> awesome. what, what an amazing amount of rough. Oh, that was amazing. That was Thank you very much. That's that, that's that emergence concept you were talking. You, you had mentioned earlier. <laughs> Conversation. Yeah, that no, that was really good, gents. I love how you just you all kind of bounced off each other there. That was really really nice. An absolute goldmine of data, of like data and, and and stories and and tips there. And and I think the interesting, there's a couple of things you kind of mentioned there, which I think are really interesting, is is releasing some cognitive space with for both. For me, I think of both the, the person doing the job in the moment because you've highlighted what is the critical step. What's that really dangerous point of no return? You know, I think that's really powerful is, is highlighting that in my brain as a, as a person doing the job. I can now concentrate on the job because I know I'm not anywhere near that critical step right now. Um, but then also the workforce, the, sorry, the the, the management who are designing the, the risk the mitigation, so to speak, um, the leaders who are resourcing all of this stuff is they can now, it's kind of like what we mentioned earlier about the resilience and efficiency kind of trade-off or balance in that that we do. It's kind of going right now by identifying where the critical step is, we can build that capacity because that's where we need to focus it. But at this other place, we can now be efficient because it's not the critical step. So I think that was something I took away from it when I got heard of it the first time. And, and I think you guys have really opened it even more there of just the, the true potential of, of highlighting that and how powerful well, it can be for the workforce. I, I know you stole something from Jim, so I'll give you something to steal from me. Okay. <laughs> I, I, Jim's such a smart guy. I, I get to steal stuff from him all the time, but the analogy to me is when everything's important, we look through, we look at a task through a keyhole, right? And when we look at that task through a keyhole, like Jim was talking about, we, we can't see what's happening. We can move our head and we can see a little here and we can see a little there. But in reality is when you do what we're talking about in the book, it actually opens the door, yeah. right? So uh, now you can see the whole room. And it allows you to, to, to open up that sphere of thought and the cognition that's going on that's necessary to identify these landmines, to see how the interaction's going and, and have those conversations around what's important start to happen because we're no longer so prescriptive that we've actually prevented this adaptive capacity. We actually enable it by doing that. Yeah, let me let me add to that, James. Uh, all three of us were qualified Navy nuclear uh, uh, operators. 
And while we were while we were active duty in the Navy, uh, either on a carrier aircraft carrier or a submarine, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on technical expertise. We were constantly training. We were constantly running scenarios uh, to to test and develop our understanding and knowledge of those technical systems. Uh, to find out not only weaknesses or export, uh, ex, uh, uh, um, disclose the weaknesses in what we knew and what we didn't know, but also in the systems, the technical systems, you know, how well were they prepared to, to operate? And, um, and so, so Admiral Rickover, who was in charge of the nuclear Navy back in those days, he understood that procedures were important, but he knew that they were not always correct. And so the, his approach to, to developing adaptive capacity was through our knowledge and skills. And so we spent a lot of time. He knew the operator had to be able to, re, to adapt and respond to those unanticipated, unproceduralized uh, uh, situations that we encountered at sea in a very inhospitable environment. So we, our survival was at, uh, at risk, you know, if we didn't understand what we were working with. Yeah. Go ahead, Jim. Well, I just want to say uh, not everybody realized that that was what Recover was about. I want to I want to speak to that because there are a lot of folks that characterize Recover as a real taskmaster and mm -hmm. the Navy approach is being very rigid. Uh, what Tony just expressed was not that. And I don't think a lot of folks realize that. So it's important to understand Rickover knew that adaptive capacity was requisite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I would add to that, that so when I go out to a lot of organizations, I'll, I'll be in the field mentoring staff or observing work. And what I tell everybody, every supervisor, every manager, every leader, every lead on the task, there's a why of work. And this goes to what we're talking about here, this adaptive capacity. And so I was out watching, just to, to put it in context, I was watching some work. They were taking a pump apart. This pump was having trouble. So they lock and tag the system. They disconnect some flanges and pull everything apart. And then they do some work and they put it all back together. And I asked the, the younger um, craftsperson, I said, so how are we going to put this back to work back together and why? And, and to be honest, the person didn't know, but the senior operator did, the senior technician. And I said, this is what's important. It's not what's on this piece of paper in this work order. What's important is the why of this work, not the what of work. The what of work is do this, do this, do this, do that. But why do we do it that way? Why do we put it back together in a different order than we took it apart? Well, it had to do with loads and spring and, and how things hung on the, you know, how the hangers held the pipes. And there's a variety of reasons. And this person didn't know. And I do this with electricians as well. There's a why of work for every task. And the question is, are you asking those so that your staff, the next time when you're not there, knows to think critically about the work and ask the right questions so they don't get set up to have a landmine eat their lunch in the next task? Because if we start teaching people that rot memorization or just follow the procedure, we're going to set people up for failure. And what, uh, you know, my mind goes to what Tony was talking about. I always thought Rick Rover was a brilliant man. He, he taught us the fundamentals. And what I'm seeing many industries do is go away from that and saying, well, we can hire someone to come in and turn a wrench. Well, 
that makes no sense. And, and I think in the nuclear Navy used to say, we can hire a monkey to turn a wrench uh, or flip a switch, but we need thinking engaged workers that are, that are thinking before they do anything. And why are we doing it this way? So the wire work, not the water work to me is, is the important aspect of this. I think there's a that there is a testament to kind of changing how we view training and competency. Like I, particularly in the in the UK, when we deliver training, we deliver training. We may not say it or maybe consciously think this is why we're doing it, but we, most of the time, I think we deliver training for compliance. We don't deliver training mm-hmm. for competence. So our primary focus is to is to deliver tick the box and say that Tony, Jim and, and, and Ron came to this course and therefore they're competent. Um, and then we maybe give you a bit of a test, but what we don't actually do is say, does that give you the competence to be able to deal with the deviation of work and, and complexity of work? And, and that's when I try and I, I try and talk to kind of customers and, and, and try and explain to them, like when we're giving people training it, it's building your adaptive capacity if you deliver it in the way that you know that, that, that delivers some impact and not just compliance. If you if you go in with the view of saying training is to build competency, that competency enables that person to make a decision in the moment to solve that problem. And I think that's a big that's a a big shift for me as perspective on a lot of this stuff as opposed. Yeah, yeah. Let me add to that. There are industries. Uh, I've been working in, in one particular industry. I won't, I won't mention it by name, but uh, uh, most uh, I've been to like seven or eight of the key client or key organizations in this industry, and they hire very smart people. And their approach to training is what they call on what I would call on the job training. And so if you see one, you know, if you watch somebody else do it and then you do it, then you're considered qualified. But but the focus is on compliance, complying with the procedure. And and these smart people, you know, they do a decent job uh, uh, for the most part. But when they encounter situations that are off normal uh, are not consistent with the procedure, uh, typically, they don't know how to respond to it because they don't know how the system is supposed to work or how it does work. And that that's interesting when you look at it like that as well, because that comes back to your point, Ron, about what we're talking about here is the gap between workers done and workers imagined. And, and the workforce, they solve these problems every day in spite of those procedures and those processes. They fix and they succeed every single day. And we pass. Right. Yes, there might be some so maybe kind of latent issues there, but ultimately they're succeeding every single day. And, and the irony of all of this, which, which kind of makes me chuckle in a, in a morbid way, is that you're, <laughs> you're, you're kind of going more procedures, more procedures, let's uh, shove the procedure. And what you don't realise is that you're actually making the problem worse because you're yeah. creating dumb clones that follow these procedures. And what you don't realise is because they're not dumb clones – and they're not following the procedures, you're not having accidents, but, to, but you're trying to implement these procedures to stop accidents. And unbeknownst to you, what you're actually doing, in my opinion, is removing your capacity that happens every single day um, by just creating standardized clones that can't think for themselves. So we oh, actually implemented this in the research community in the DOE National Lab um, complex, James. And, uh, we we didn't use 
the the terminology that we use in our book because some of it wasn't even created. Um, partly because the the research community was a little bit uh, gun shy, having experienced some of the uh, kind of radical Navy nuclear approaches in the Department of Energy. But um, we drew a box and we said, within this box, these are the critical points. Things must go right. And don't go outside because that's unanalyzed territory. We know that there will be some problems there. But for everything between those points in the box, we counted on expertise. Mm-hmm. We counted on the, the expert uh, knowledge and abilities of our research scientists to fill in those parts. And it was counting on them to be thinkers, not just yeah somebody following a procedure. And um, the approach uh, yielded results that uh, had great success and incident rates that were routinely much better than the operations folks that were using the more prescriptive methods for controlling work. So there was really no downside. And, and one of the real upsides is that those smart people that you hire and then tell what to do, they don't really appreciate that. They would <laughs> like assistance, right? They would like support. They'd like that safety net that I was talking mm-hmm. about. But they don't want you to come in and tell them how to do the job that you hired them to do. They want you to support identifying those things that absolutely must go right and how to go about doing that. But there's a whole lot of other activity outside that that you really can then leave for them. And they appreciate that. Yeah. And we encourage uh, managers, line managers to get out of their office, go out into the field, actually watch work, talk to the to the you know, first line, front line uh, uh, workers, researchers, people doing the work of the organization uh, to understand. The, 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 the resource constraints, the, the limitations that they're, they're working under, because like Ron had mentioned, work as done is very seldom the same as work as imagined. And primarily the reason for that gap is organizational. It's system related. And managers need to understand how their systems do or do not work to support what's going on on the front line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm- yeah, I love this, gents. And I, and I think it's so interesting when you start to really pull out like tangible examples of this. And it, it, a couple of the things you're saying make me think to a, a, a kind of client that I was talking to a few months back that, that were dealing with um, like really dynamic environments. So they're dealing with high rise buildings, having to install like really heavy kind of essentially glass um, so it's like high rise, high d- dynamic environments. And, and he had this really interesting uh, approach, which I loved. Like, and, he, and when I was talking to him, he was like, I'm not sure I get all this hop stuff. And then we ended up just in a different day talking about his work and, and how they manage their risks. Um, and he was telling me, oh, well, what I do, James, is, is first things first, we make sure we've got the majority of the team 
are highly competent. Like these guys are highly skilled glazers. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Love that. You know, these guys know what they're doing. They've done this for years. And we might have one or two um, lower skilled people in there as labor or apprentice or something like that. But 90% of the team will always be highly skilled. So I'm like, cool, build yourself some capacity there like that. And then he was like, in the van, we always try and give them the gear we think they need to do the job but also the gear that if they turn up and it's not quite like what we think it's going to be like a different type of ladder or a harness or the ways to install an anchorage point and stuff like that um so he had like capacity in his tools as well and, and ladders and approaches to actually do the job um and then he had this really lovely little principle basically and it was kind of in my opinion i'd say it was kind of like a heuristic that they created in the workforce because he said all the lads they, they use this he said we got this thing called two changes so he said we'll have our risk assessment we'll have our method statement our procedures and our policies are in the organization but ultimately we've got highly skilled workers we've got uh, you know, enough tools to be able to deviate a little bit and then we've got this rule called two changes and the rule is, so when they go on site, they're allowed to deal with two changes. So if something changes, deviates from the, the process once, they can deal with it. Twice, they they go, mm, okay, I'm ringing the boss. Because the, the company have gone, that's a bit too much of a deviation from reality as to how we see it. We just want to know like what it is. We're not saying we're going to stop the work. What we're saying is two changes, ring us. So once you get to that second change, anything after that, give us a call and we'll have a chat. And I was like, you say you don't get this kind of hop stuff. You've built quite a lot of stuff in there that I really like. Like you've got highly skilled workers, you've got capacity in your tools, you've got heuristic that helps them deal with it and goes, okay, now we've gone too far um, and we need to, we need to ring the boss and get some help. You know, it wasn't, they, I, they didn't understand the concept of, of kind of point of no return, which is what I called it up until this moment. Um, and when I kind of started explaining that, he was like, oh, I love that. We're going to implement that. That's, that's going in as well. So he's now he was now kind of uh, talking with his lads, being like, right, lads, we need to highlight point of no return on our jobs and stuff like that. Um, but I was just, people do get this. I just think sometimes it's that academic language, isn't it? And to, to reality. And I think what you guys do really well, and like I said, I, I haven't read it properly, but I have skim read the, the, the three chapters that, you've, that you give away. Um, well, like, let me jump on to what you're just you're introducing, James. Uh, you know, it, it, a lot of the organizations are doing some of the things that we we talk about in the book. Yeah. And so it's important when you think if you think as an organization, the management team that you want to implement this, uh, we encourage yeah. organizations to do a needs assessment. You know, what where is the need? You know, what are you doing that's already you're already doing well? You don't want to lose that. You want to keep that. But where are the gaps? Where, where in the uh, operation do can we do uh, critical steps uh, more effectively? And uh, and so so we uh, that's our last chapter. The last chapter of the book is all about how do you find where we need to improve, and then how you go about implementing or executing these concepts in your organization. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Sound like the lorry just turned off outside, Ron. <laughs> um, no, that's really good, gents. And, and and I picked up in the book is those stories so far in the, in the chapters I've read. You know, just a story, 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 stories that, that I'm just reading, and I'm like, wow, that's relatable. 
like I can pick that up. Like, I think one of the first examples you give is the friendly fire. Is it? Is that quite early on in the book? I'm not sure. it's, a, it's the first chapter. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's really eye opening. And I, and I and I was like such a interesting um, way to look at this is just more stories the better. And I and I think you've hit the nail on the head with that that gap between we've got kind of like a workers done. Um, workers imagined issue with academic safety and practical safety. I call it surf- safety is imagined and safety is done in like That's what Eric and Todd will talk about. Safety is imagined. And then the rest of us practitioners talk about safety is done and they're not, they're not the same. Go on, Jim. I want to make the point that um, in the absence of doing something, safety actually has no meaning. So yeah, if, if we're talking about um, what this book is about, it's about um, high-risk operations. Operations include safety. And, and I think it's important because there's a tendency these days for a lot of folks to talk about safety one, safety two, safety differently, new view safety, et cetera. But safety taken out of the context of operations really has no meaning. Right. So it it really needs to be a conversation about doing stuff. And mm-hmm. if if you consider how an expert in any field does business, when they're planning to I, I use an example of when we shot a nuclear weapon with a linear accelerator, uh, you don't just think, well, I'm gonna shoot a nuclear weapon with a thing that's got a lot of energy and see what happens. You actually consider what the operating characteristics of all these pieces of equipment are because you're a technical expert. You understand that these are potential downsides and these are the upsides that you're striving for and the balance that you're always having to make. Um, when When we talk about stuff just from the perspective of safety, it tends to skew the conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's important not to do that. Yeah. I always challenge managers. I'll, I, whenever I have a chance to talk to executives, I ask them, what's their first priority? Invariably, they say, well, safety, you know, protecting our folks. I, I forgive my French, but I say, well, that's bullshit. You don't exist to, to be safe. That's a lot nicer than what I'd say, Tony, if they say it to me. People say that. You know, you exist to make a profit or you exist to create some value that has some value in the marketplace. But if you cannot do that work without causing harm, you're going to be out of business eventually. And and so, so the challenge is that I get, I have a a pet peeve when I sit in on production meetings and they always have this safety moment at the beginning. And then they say, okay, now we've, you know, we spent five minutes on safety. Now we can talk about the real work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and real work, if you think about it, is risky. Yeah. Work is force over a distance. And when something changes, if it doesn't change the way you want it to change, then you've caused damage or loss. And so safety uh, quality has to be talked about concurrent with the production process. It can't be separate. It's, it's an aspect of work, isn't it? Yeah. It's, that's what work's about. Directing I, I that energy. Add one thing on top of Tony and Jim's uh, conversation, because I like where this was going, was that 
one of the things we talk about in the book is critical steps and risk important actions aren't things not to be done. They are baked into getting work done. We do risk important actions to produce a product, to set us up to take that critical step. I mean, if we're going to do a lifting and rigging activity, the moment, you know, that, that load gets, uh, begins to, to have a strain on the, on the lifting the gear, we're, we're at a critical step. We've, we've introduced a source of energy. Everything prior to that's risk important actions. Now you can break it down into discrete elements in the, in the process where there's other critical steps, don't get me wrong. But I think it's important for folks to recognize these aren't things to be avoided, but they are things to be done safely and, mm-hmm. and with some uh, precision and execution of how that is done so that when, when you do that activity, we understand not only what must be done correctly, but what the outcome is going to be when we do it. So I I think that's an important part of this safety conversation is that these things aren't to be avoided, neither is safety, right? It's baked into the way we do business, but we need to understand when safety applies. And I think one of the things I heard from one of my my customers was uh, a lot of their folks, when you use the word hazard, it's a bit nebulous, right? There's static, there's dynamic hazards, there's a variety of things. But when we talk about work, there's a hazard and a risk involved in all work that produces some sort of product or process. And what we, we've got to do is then pull that out. And one of the one of the chapters in the book I think folks will appreciate is we've, we've done a really good job of expanding what Tony worked on previously, which is critical step mapping and how to map that process out so that when you take and you're going to bring on a new process, you can, you can run it through this. Or if you have an existing one, you can leverage this information to help you identify these risk important actions and critical steps and know where these touch points are where you're going to have that potential for harm. And, and I think knowing that brings safety to the, the world of work. And it also brings that efficiency uh, that Jim and Tony both expanded on. Yeah, I was going to actually, as you were kind of talking, Ron, I was thinking, where, where do you, and I realize we've been talking for a while, so we need to tie this up soon. Um, but where do you you see the concept of critical step being like actually used? Do you see that as like, it's a concept that the operator really understands so that they can identify, you know, when there's when there's tightness in, there's load, there's, you know, uh, energy in the load or something like that. Like, okay, now we're at a critical step. Is it in the processes, the procedures, the risk assessments, or is it both? Well, yeah, the idea of a critical step is when you have a transfer of energy. Yeah or a movement of matter from one place to another place. You're moving uh, water from one tank to another tank, or, or uh, you're heating a solution. You're adding heat and adding uh, uh, the temperature that solution is going up. And if that temperature rises is, is, is higher than what's allowed for that product, that substance, you may have gone p- past the point of no return uh, and, and, and uh, damaged what's in that substance. Same thing like a, 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 a tire on your automobile. You know, there's a speed rating, there's a pressure rating, uh, there's a thickness rating for, for a safe, safe use of a tire. And so if you exceed any of those parameters, you know, if you're, if you're driving that car past the speed rating, <laughs> God forbid, uh, uh, for that tire, or you, you let the tread go down t- uh, too small, you've exceeded the, the, uh, the critical safety parameter for that, for that device. Yeah. And those would be considered critical steps. 
All right. But risk important actions, the way we way, way we think about it, create safety. We talk about the workers being able to create safety, but what they're creating is through through the, they're creating the safe conditions so that we can do the work without harm, without losing control. And that's done by the risk important actions. The risk important actions actually create safety. I use the example of skydiving. All right. And so the critical step, I think everybody would agree, is jumping across that open door, right? You know, jumping out of the aircraft. That's the critical step. That satisfies that definition. But what creates safety for that act? Putting on a, 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 a parachute that's going to deploy properly. So it needs to be folded properly and it has to be secured around your body. And you have to have the knowledge in order to deploy it. Yeah. And what to do if it doesn't deploy, you know, hopefully you got an emergency shoot. And uh, so there's certain conditions that have to be satisfied before the critical step, which is normal in everyday skydiving. You know, if, if you're a regular skydiver. So it's kind of like, like how we would see it. I'm just trying to think uh, to try and tie this in a loop for the listener. If they're, if they're not quite getting it, like for me, it's, it's, it's kind of like a heuristic that we would have in our, in our organization of to, this understanding what a critical step is, we might, well, I think we would use that to help us guide our proactive work design, e.g. risk assessments, procedures, whatever. We would use it to guide that. But then also, I think we would use it in the moment with the worker to understand that they're at that point. Mm, yeah. at the point of crit. So it, it's kind of, it's both, isn't it? It's Yes, it's in that work design, that admin process, but also it's in that dynamic emergent process of work as well. Yeah, well, you, we, we yeah, actually the, talk about it from three phases, the, the, the planning, the, the pre-job briefing or, or the work discussion that's going to occur prior to the work, and then actually during work execution. And we take folks through that and we line it out very clearly how this applies to those phases of work mm -hmm. so that, that they walk away with a clear understanding what's your role relative to critical step management in these different phases of work. Wow. I think that's, that's awesome. I really like that. Well, and then bringing, bringing in the realization um, that even though you've lined it out administratively, you, you think you've identified the critical steps, your folks understand the concept and they realize when they're engaging in a critical step, um, recognizing that uh, because things change, that there has to be a constant vigilance. And it's driven, as Tony was talking about, by what we call chronic unease, that we need to keep evaluating, interacting with others, watching the conditions, and then seeing if the actual conditions necessary to safely perform the critical steps still exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love that, gents. Right. Um, my wife's texted me saying she's dishing up dinner. And uh, <laughs> Oh, that's right. <laughs> talking for over an hour. Um, but I do want to finish on one thing. I know you finish each chapter of the book with um, uh, a, a phrase like, what, what can you do tomorrow uh, with, with what you've learned in this chapter? So kind of reflecting on our conversation today, what would you think that listeners can do tomorrow based on what we've been speaking about today? But well, I, I think the simple one is to buy our book. I mean, that, that <laughs> <laughs> done. Yeah, great. Oh, gosh. Absolutely nailed it. 
Well, you know, probably the, the simplest thing you can do is, uh, is, is take the definition, you know, take this definition and start looking at your work. You know, tomorrow you can start looking at your work. What activities, what human activities satisfy that definition? And then you can, then it should pop right out what you need to do in order to control that, make sure it goes right or what you need to do to fail safely. Yeah. Anything to add, Jim? Well, I'll, I'll, Go on, Jim. I'll, I'll finish up by saying that in, in addition, um, once you've got that list, start cutting. Because you undoubtedly have a lot of specification for things that are not critical. Yeah. And you yeah. will significantly improve the clarity of your operation. Yeah. And I, I make the distinction. You're not really trying to simplify because in our high risk industries, simplification can get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. But to have clarity around what must go right. And therefore, those things that are not at that level of importance will give you that bandwidth. And you'll have even more resilient operations. Nice, nice. Ron, anything you'd like to kind of close up with? No, I, I, I think we, we've covered it. And uh, I sure appreciate the time, James. It's been a fun and interesting journey with you. So thanks for having us on. Thank you all for coming on. Thank you very much. We shall, um, where's the best, best place to get the book from? I assume will be Amazon. Well, uh, obviously Amazon, but actually any any website that sells books should uh, should have it. Uh, but the uh, the the publisher is uh, CRC Press. Uh, it has a combined website with Routledge, and both the both Routledge and CRC Press are imprints of Taylor and Francis. And so, if you just do a, a do a Google search on Critical Steps, uh, you you'll find it. Well, we'll um we'll we'll get a link in the in the description as well, so that so that people can buy it um, hopefully nice and easy, gentlemen. So thank you very much. Best of luck with the book sale. I know when we record this, it's coming out in a couple of days, but when this comes out, hopefully this will resurge everything. And if they haven't bought the book already, they will They will buy it now. But thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thanks, James. Okay, beeps. Hope you enjoyed that chat with those three gentlemen. Hope you know more now than you did before. I hope you know now what a critical step is. Um, I've actually been using Critical Step for a while now. Uh, I found it a really, really good tool. Um, sometimes I call it point of no return because I think people really uh, understand that in England a little bit easier. So a little bit of a practitioner uh, experience advice there for you. Uh, that's how I've, I've, I've used it and how I found a little bit more receptive um, of the shop floor anyway, a little bit more receptive. Um, so hopefully you can take that away with you. Hope you enjoyed the chat. Hope you got something out of it. Um, just before we go, don't forget, check out rebrandsafety.com. Loads of stuff we can do for you. Consultancy, whether it's technical, whether it's cultural, um, loads of stuff that we can do. Project Meletium for your professional development, whether it's for you personally or for your safety team or your risk team. Um, there's loads of offerings that we've got there and we're currently offering a month free as well. So the code is on the website, but we'll put the code below as well so you can get your first month free. Don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance if you're looking for some hop specialist support. They are 100% the place to be if you're looking for some, some support. And go check out Learning Organization webinar from Paradigm as well. Thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you next week. Safe.
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.